Hello everyone, welcome to Radically Loved Radio. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest, Amy Morin. Amy is a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist. Since 2002, she has been counseling children, teens, and adults. Her expertise in mental strength has attracted international attention. Her best-selling book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, is being translated into more than 20 languages. She's got a TED Talk that's had more than 400,000 views. She's been featured in uh, Forbes Magazine, Fox News, NBC, Help.com, Oprah.com, Cosmopolitan, Elle. She is a well-known public speaker and her knowledge expands so much more beyond the things that she's written about. I'm so excited to have her as a guest. In my therapy office over the years, figured out, you know, some people get better a lot faster. Some people, when they are, no matter what they're going through, whether they are depressed or they're going through a divorce or they have some financial trouble, it seemed to be that some people were much more resilient than others. And part of what I was doing after a while was trying to figure out, well, what is it? What's the secret sauce that makes some people more resilient than other people? And over the years, I just sort of figured out sometimes it's not about what we do, it's about what we don't do. And I'm a social worker, so we are taught and trained to really build on people's strengths. And there's definitely value to that, but sometimes I think you can't ignore those nagging little habits that were holding people back. And so I really wanted to say, well, you know, okay, you do these things really well, but and we can build on that, but we also have to look at these other things that are holding you back. And I had never really written down until that day that I you know, was in emotional turmoil for myself. I'd never really written down that list all in one place. That was the first time I'd, I'd ever really seen it. And when I did, I thought, yeah, you know, here's this comprehensive list. Sometimes people ask me, was, you know, did you mean to have 13? Was there a magical reason for coming up with a list that had 13? No, there wasn't. That was just how many, how many things I, I felt like there were to make a comprehensive list. But, and it was also personal as well. If you know my story, you know, I wrote it out of a very personal place and it was all of those things that I'd learned. Okay. If you do these things, then you're not going to be able to be strong. And for, for, yes, I, and it's such a great, great way of uh, really encompassing all of those things together. That's why, I mean, it, it really is an, an incredible work. And for the people that, that are listening that don't know, there's an awesome TED Talk that Amy does where you can see the story. But can you give the listener just a brief recap of what spawned this book and, and your story and a little bit of background about that? Sure. When I had started working as a therapist at, when I was 23, and it was a big year for me. I had gotten married, and I bought a house. I graduated from grad school, got my first big job, and thought, okay, here we go. And I felt like I it was, you know, really had this competitive advantage. I thought, you know, I'm 23, and I've got all this great stuff going on. And during that same year, my mom passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And that was when it became real to me that I wasn't just teaching other people how to cope with life's troubles, but it was really now about how do I apply that same knowledge and skill to my own life. And so I really became invested in figuring out, well, what makes people mentally strong? How do you get through tough times, whether it is grief or some other sort of problem that you encounter? How do you get through it? And a few years down the road, it was three years to the day, in fact, that my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And then I was really in a place where I thought, well, now what do I do? I don't have a mom. I don't have a husband anymore. And I'm 26 and I'm widowed. And how do, how do I move forward? How do I still go to work as a therapist, 
now when my own life's in turmoil and help other people with their problems. And this really became real to me to say, okay, well, this is this is my time to figure out how do I be strong? How do I grieve? Which is really about going through the pain. We tend to want to go around pain mm-hmm. or we mm-hmm. want to do anything we can to escape it. But I knew I had to go through it. So I said, well, how do I go through it so that in the end I'll be okay someday? And I didn't want to rush. I, I did want to rush through it, but I knew that if I did, it wasn't going to be helpful. But I'd seen so many people who were grieving, and they'd come in my office 30 years after they'd lost somebody, but it was still like it happened just yesterday, and it was so hard for them to talk about. So I said, you know, I, I really want to make sure that I I grieve in a way that's healing so that I can be okay someday, and, and really had to figure out how do I do that, and how do you tolerate being so sad and, and angry and upset and all of those uncomfortable emotions that come with grief, and... And I held out hope. I said, okay, you know, someday life could get better. And I was fortunate that it did. I met Steve a few years later. It was about the time where I had figured I'll just be single for the rest of my life. I wasn't interested in dating. And I was sort of okay with saying, well, that's fine. I can still live a fun, adventurous life. And then, of course, how life works. Here comes Steve. And fell in love, got married again. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, it's my new chapter in life. And and almost as quickly as we got married, his his dad was diagnosed with cancer, and it was prostate cancer. So they said, well, you know, he'll die of something else. It's slow-growing, and don't you, you don't have to be all that concerned about it because there's medication. There's lots of options to treat it. We can't cure it, but it will probably be able to treat it. But um, sure enough, they weren't. And within a few months, we got the word that it was terminal. And my father-in-law and I had grown very close, and he, you know, become like a substitute parent to me. And I thought, oh, I don't want to lose somebody else. Why does this have to happen to me? This isn't fair. All those sorts of things. And and but I realized, okay, you can't think like this. This isn't particularly helpful to you at that moment. So mm-hmm. I sat down and I wrote a list of what mentally strong people don't do. And I said, you know, I'll publish it to the web. See what happens. If it helps me, maybe it could help somebody else. And within a matter of days, it went crazy viral. It got 10 million views. Forbes picked it up, and it became their most viral article of all time. It's gone on at Business Insider. It got 10 million views there. But And then I got the opportunity to write a book. But before I knew it, there was, you know, the news was calling. I was on Fox News, and people were asking me, hey, how do you know about mental strength? And I wasn't <laughs> in space to tell people the story. My right. father-in-law had actually just died four oh. days before that. And so people said, oh, how do you know about this? And I just kind of gave a story about, well, I'm a therapist and I know these things. But the real story was my life was in complete turmoil and I had written that as a letter to myself. And I'm thankful now that I had the opportunity to write a book to explain the story behind why I wrote it. Yeah, I mean, wow. <laughs> that's that's that was never lot. my intention, you know, because I just wrote this 600-word article uh, you know, and that was never my intention to, to write a book. And I certainly never thought, you know, I'd be talking about it years later. But sometimes you just never know. Yeah, well, I think that that's what happens when you write something so sincere and so genuine and from a place of, of real substantial heart feeling, you know, from that place of just this is like the rawness of the grief and the sadness and all of these things and all of the stuff that you want to focus on instead of focus on, you know, this, this whole idea of like, you know, the, the feeling sorry for yourself type of thing, you know, you, you were able to like create this manifesto really, 
right? That can yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That... Sometimes people will say, "Well, you know, it's like an overnight success. You wrote this one article; it, it went viral, and you got a book deal." But that's not really how it went. I'd been writing articles for lots of places on the web for years, and but as a therapist, I was usually very careful to write things that were quite critical. Maybe it wouldn't offend anybody, and I tried to stick to the facts. <laughs> this is one of those rare articles where, like, I didn't care. I wasn't, you know, worrying about offending anybody or saying something that. Um, somebody might take offense to it was just really from the heart and of course that's the one that um, went crazy viral right well can you tell me (laughs) can you tell me what it was like to talk to these people when they were interviewing you as you were going through this process like what was that like it was insane time in my life so um, I wrote the original article just before Thanksgiving and then by the next um I think it was about two days after I wrote it, Forbes contacted me and said, hey, we we just reprinted your list to our website. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I wasn't even excited about it because, you know, we were really nearing the end of my father-in-law's life, and I knew that. And some of the first people who read my article didn't particularly like it, so I was mm-hmm. starting to get some hate mail from people, and I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> this is really what I want to deal with. And then, and then when it you know, it blew up to the point that it was crazy. I would look at the Forbes article, and every time I would refresh my screen, 10,000 more people had read it. And it was a few seconds later, I'd hit the refresh button, and it was another round of 10,000 people reading it. And I just couldn't comprehend, like, how many people in the world are reading this. And then, you know, throughout it all, then when people would ask me, how did you come up with this? Or I am sitting on, Forbes said, hey, we want to interview you on camera to talk about this. And, and I had told Forbes, they knew the story, but I said, I'm not going to talk about it on camera. I'm not going to open the floodgates on, well, you have a camera on me, because right. I think, you know, going through all of this, I just, too raw, I can't talk about it. But a lot of the other people didn't know the story either. And then it got picked up, you know, Rush Limbaugh talked about it, and Glenn Beck talked about it, and it was just kept going around and around. And then a literary agent called and said, you should write a book about this. And I didn't even tell her that there was a story behind it. I just said, yeah, maybe. And <laughs> You're um, like, I'll think about it. <laughs> well, that's just it, right? Like, I didn't even, I was like, yeah, whatever. But I was in a place you know, where we were really focused on our family and how do we, how do we, you know, go forward and how do we, now we're planning a funeral and all at the same time, this, you know, crazy stuff was happening. So it was a bizarre, bizarre experience. And then um, by January, so I wrote that at, Thanksgiving time, and by the 1st of January, we had a book deal with HarperCollins, and so it was this incredibly strange time in my life, a month and a half of um, just really, you know, the best of times and the worst of times all at once. Yeah, wow, yeah, that's, it It just, that's so much for, you know, one person to be able to, to deal with, you know, so you at this point have ha- had had the support of Steve, right, while you guys were going through this process. Right. Um, so that I'm sure was a huge help for you to be able to like, you know, show up to the public now, because it's almost like uh, we need you now, your clients need you. And it's like this thing where uh, you're, you're, you need to show up and, and, and be able to, to bring these things to, to the world now. Right. So it, it maybe propels a a different type of process, um, or a, a different type of like courage to to be strong now for the general public, right? Yeah, I wasn't even. It was probably a couple of weeks. I had gone out to lunch with some friends, and they said, "Well, are you going to tell your story?" And I was like, "Oh," and I didn't want to. And I didn't even tell the literary agent until 
it was probably close to Christmas time before I said to her, hey, I have this story, but I'm a therapist. I listen to people's stories. I don't tell my own story. I said, you know, do I have to tell it? And she said, well, no, you don't have to, but you might want to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was really, and then I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to write a book on mental strength, then I guess I should probably be strong enough to be able to say, hey, look, and this is what happened to me too, and, and tell my story. I'm so thankful I did now, but... Um, but that was scary. I'm a really private person in general, so to tell anything about my story. In fact, the first draft of the book probably had about three sentences of my life. And my editor very kindly said, maybe you could put some more color into this. <laughs> so I added like a few more sentences and she's like, no, you know, the introduction needs to be the story. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and so now I'm glad that I told it rather than, you know, I feel like I was keeping a huge secret if nobody knew the story behind it. But thankful that I did, and I've had plenty of people say that's helpful to know that you've been there, too, that you weren't just, you didn't just come up with these magically as a therapist, but that you know what it's like to be, you know, at the bottom of the barrel, too. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it helps us kind of connect to how we relate to that. You know, there's so, I mean, there's so many things in this book that, I mean, I found such a deep connection to, and, you know, the different stories, but one thing that came up for me uh, a lot was, uh, well, I mean, all of them, all, all 13 applied, but you know, I, I'm a a coach, you know, so I, I work with, with people and I refer people out a lot. And this is a lot of these sort of qualities are, are things that are so useful for us to begin to practice and to begin to learn. You know, I think one of the biggest ones for me was, uh, don't worry about pleasing everyone. Um, that was huge, right? Because just of working in an industry of wellness and, and health and um, creating space for people, you know, as a yoga teacher, as a meditation guide, as a coach, um, you're and, and a writer, right? So I'm not always going to be able to please everyone with the stuff that I that I bring to the table, and and that's okay. Uh, and this is something that I try to instill in my, uh, you know, my coaching clients, like, it's okay, you don't always have to please everyone. Um, and the other thing that really stood out for me was um, the the dwelling on the past and the feeling sorry for ourselves, right? <laughs> like, that's mm-hmm. that's the other thing. And I think that this this is why it was so key. And, and I found that your story was so powerful. Because again, this is another thing that causes this sort of blockade for us to move forward. And like you said, like you were moving through the the grief, not around it. And so many times we try to do things to placate our emotions and to not actually go through them, but instead to, you know, uh, we do all of these things, you know, we self-medicate, we deviate, we continue to avert from actually dealing with the process of being sad, you know. So anytime I find myself in a position where I'm with someone who's dealing with grief or or loss or really struggling with something in their life, it's like, well, just, you know, f- be where you are. Like, just allow yourself to be present uh where you are and with what you're doing and you know the so much of what what you speak to is is about that right it's about just being where you are and and allowing yourself to not you know be afraid of taking risks and you know like all of these different things so uh i think that 
you know, I, what I'd like to do is actually get your, your opinion on, on that. And you work with, with your, um, patients in, in regard to that. I'm sure a lot of what you deal with is, is people just, you know, that dwelling on the past bit or, you know, not, not moving out of their story. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think we all tend to look for this short-term quick solutions. We all want quick fixes. So, <laughs> And there's so much about happiness these days, and people put so much pressure on themselves thinking, well, I should be happy. And it's, you know, that type of mindset that keeps you from being happy and that you're not going to be happy all the time and that it's okay to be sad. But we're so uncomfortable with our emotions sometimes that we'll do just about anything to cheer ourselves up, even if it's a quick fix. So whether somebody says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to drink because that helps or I'm going to just jump into another relationship right mm -hmm. now because that will make me feel better today. But then we tend to create our even more long-term problems for ourselves, and we need to really look at the long-term, what's going to make you happy, or maybe exercising isn't what you want to do right now, but it, it boosts your mood. There's plenty of research that shows it makes you happier, but it might not make you happier in the moment when you're in pain and you're thinking, this is stupid and I don't want to do it anymore. And so to figure out, well, sometimes you got to have those tough times you got to go through hard things in life and let yourself feel that and that's okay it's okay to be sad or it's okay to be angry and I find so many people will say you know it's um the anger's bad or they think you know I shouldn't be angry but anger's not the enemy it's okay to be mad a lot of really good things in life have come because somebody got angry and said I'm not going to do this anymore or I don't want to deal with this anymore and and that's okay, but it's all about what you do with those emotions. You know, the behaviors that you choose when you're mm -hmm. feeling something is is really quite telling. And I always tell people, if you want to change how you feel, you have to change how you behave and change how you think. But that sometimes it's to know it's okay to be in a bad mood or it's okay to be sad today, but you just don't want to get stuck that way. So if you're stuck in a bad spot in life, then you have to say, well, what am I going to do to change my mood and to really find out where's that line? If you don't want to feel sorry for yourself, for example, that it's okay to feel sad when something bad happens, but mm. self-pity is not the same thing. It's really when you start to think, you know, nobody else is dealing with as many problems. My life is so much worse. Poor me. That's what keeps you stuck. So yeah. it's really about finding that fine line of, you know, it's okay to feel bad. And then to say, well, do I need to do something about it? And if so, how do I get out of this? Yeah, and I think that the other, uh, to your point, it's like, you know, when, when we start feeling bad about ourselves, but then it's the downward spiral, then it's like, oh, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy. And then it turns it like one thing can domino effect into this place that it takes you all the way down. Right? It's like that perpetual cycle where it's like, then it just creates a long term sadness, then at that point, you're just sad or upset. That's it exactly. And to figure out how do you break that cycle, because you start thinking really negative thoughts, makes you feel worse, and then the worse you feel, the less you do to make your life better, which then reinforces those negative thoughts, and it just goes around and around, and you have to figure out, well, how do I break this cycle? Well, usually it means doing something different, even if you don't feel like it. Maybe you just want to sit at home, or you don't want to get up off the couch, but you just have to trust that doing something different will is the best thing for you, to go out and and say, okay, well, what's one thing I could do today to make my life just a little bit better, and when you start doing that, even though you don't feel like it, but you start taking the action, that's what really changes your life and gets you out of that negative cycle. 
what's like something that that someone can do if they're like stuck in that sort of that process of they just don't feel like say somebody's listening to this right now and they're like wanting to to just feel better because they're just feeling really bad about themselves or they're really down um what's something that they can do to begin to uh, to begin the process of of getting out of that cycle I'm a big fan of doing behavior experiments, and so to, um, we call it acting as if. So if you're really sad to say, well, what would I be doing if I were happy today? Maybe if you were happy, you'd be calling your friends, or you'd be going out for a walk, or you'd, um, you know, be planting flowers in your garden, whatever it might be, but to say, what is it I'd be doing? And then you go do that, even though you don't feel like it. Or I work with people, say, who have social anxiety, and they'll say, you know, I'm going to this event, mm-hmm. and I don't want to go, and I'm really anxious. And we say, well, what would you do when you get there? Well, normally I go sit in the corner because I don't want to talk to anybody. Well, then what happens? Well, then nobody talks to me. And then what (laughs) happens? Well, then I think, you know, I'm a social outcast. So we say, well, what would you do if you were an outgoing and friendly and confident person? Well, I'd walk up to people and I'd talk to them. So what if you acted like that anyway, even though you don't feel it? What if you just went and did it? And then people will say, well, then people will probably talk to me back. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about figuring out how do you act as if. So to say, what's the, what's the feeling I want to have and what would I be doing if I felt that way right now? And then to go do it anyway. If you lead with your behavior, sometimes the feelings will follow. I love that. That's really, that's a great, that's a great practice to do because it, it really works. I mean, I, I've done it myself where I've been feeling like, you know, if I was, feeling sad about something or uh, really upset and it's like okay it's just the downward spiral you know of okay now I feel like this and now I feel like this and now I'm just sitting at home like eating bags of popcorn and spoonfuls of peanut butter and I'm just gonna sit here and watch Netflix all day and why do I feel like this (laughs) you know exactly right and so usually the, the quick fix is just going outside. I mean, for me, that's like the thing that works right away. It's like just getting up or moving my body, you know, like, and typically it's the downward spiral, like things start to go awry the minute that I'm not doing something that's part of my norm, you know, like I wake up every morning, I meditate, I practice yoga, you know, like I go and I teach my classes and I see clients or I teach my classes and then I just, you know, I walk my dogs, I spend some time with my sweetie or, you know, I go read a book or, you know, something to kind of fuel that, that part of me that's like, oh, okay, like I can just take a beat, I can take a moment, you know, and, and it feels good to do or I'll go see a movie or, or, you know, call a friend or do something. But it's like those moments where I'm just really busy and then one thing starts to fall away and then the next and then the next and then the next and then the next. and it's like so many things need to be done. I don't want to do any of it. It's so much easier to stay at home and not do any of it, you know. So, yeah, exactly. yeah, that's a that's that's really great. Um, that's really great. Thank you for that. Um, I also want to talk about that. So so the the fear of being alone um I, I really like what you wrote about, you know, being happy, being alone, right? Because I, I find personally, I, I work with a lot of people all the time. Like I go teach classes with large groups of people and I, I enjoy being alone. I don't feel lonely. And, you know, because there's all these things and I feel connected to, to where I'm at. But sometimes there are those moments where, I do feel that loneliness and I'm like, well, is this, a, should I go out and, and be with, 
with people. Like there's, you know, this, this whole feeling of maybe disconnection, right? Um, can you? Yeah, I talk to a lot of people who will say, well, I'm comfortable being alone. That's not a problem for me. But then when I'll ask them, well, what do you do when you're alone? Well, I'm texting my friends or, you know, <laughs> on Facebook. And, and say, well, you know, how long? I think it's important to say, how do you set aside time to just be alone with your thoughts sometimes? Mm-hmm. And even if it's just 10 minutes a day, our lives are just so busy and so full of social noise and there's stuff going on constantly. But to sit and just think for 10 minutes is can be really instrumental to your life. You know, they did a study where they asked people, would you rather be alone with your thoughts for 15 minutes or submit yourselves to an electric shock? And 25% of women opted for the electric shock. Are you serious? And they asked, <laughs> right. And then they asked men, and 75% of men opt for the electric shock. And I think that that is quite telling about, <laughs> you know, our society these days and that, you know, to sit in... I think we tend to think, well, it's a waste of time to sit and do nothing or, you know, I need to be productive or I need to be hustling. And there's definitely a lot of value to being socially engaged with people. We need to have friends and not just Facebook friends, but real-life friends, and you need to be interacting with people. But you also need time to yourself to think, okay, how am I doing in life and where do I fit in and how how are, how are my goals? Am I making progress or not? Or am I going to change some of my goals or how how am I doing as far as living according to my values or my priorities in order? Lots of stuff like that that if you never set time aside to just think about, it just kind of gets away from you. And before you know it, you're all, well, what am I doing here? And just time to reflect. You know, so I always encourage people, just take a few minutes a day, even if you can just spare 10 minutes to just say, I'm going to sit and just think about things. Your brain needs time to just process things and work through things and and to really evaluate how you're doing and where you're going and what do you want to be different in your life. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, I love that. That's true. You know, especially now in society, like the way that we're constantly, you know, constantly, constantly swamped by uh, information, you know, social media and, you know, whatever you're doing with your career, like it's just constant information, you know, like media outlets, like everything that's causing, you know, that sort of uh, depletion of energy. And, you know, it's, I think it's, I think it's really interesting how women chose that and not the men, you know? And I, I'm curious if you think that perhaps maybe because now we're, we're taking more prominent roles in society. And I feel that, you know, more women are, are, you know, garnering more powerful roles and, and, you know, it's like we're creating this whole, like, independence and and equality and, and we're so driven now. We're so independent now, you know. And I, I'm wondering if that's sort of, that could be a reasoning behind why that, that study showed that. Yeah, you know, I think... I think there is a lot of so much pressure on women these days to do everything, right? They're still mm-hmm. supposed to do, um, you know, to be there for the kids as a primary caretaker, but then so many women also want to be the primary breadwinner or to go out and have a, a successful career, but then there's that pressure that you need to be super mom too. And and I think that it's just being felt that, you know, like how do you take time out for yourself? And I talk to so many women that will be like, well, I feel selfish if I were to take 10 minutes of my day. Mm-hmm. Really, 10 minutes of your day, you feel selfish to 
to just have some quiet time, but I talk to so many women that will say that, or they'll just say, I can't, there's literally not a, a spare moment in my day, or they'll say, you know, my time to myself is when I'm doing the laundry or when I'm, you know, driving to pick my kid up from soccer practice. That's the only spare minute I have in the day. And I, I think that that's sad. I think it's really telling of how busy we are today. And I think we really confuse sometimes being busy with being productive. And we tend to think if as long as you're always moving, it means you're busy. But um, sometimes the best way to be more productive is to just slow down and, and take time out for yourself. Yeah. And I I think that part of that process is like how we're, we want, you know, uh, what is it like, uh, we want automatic satisfaction, right? We want to see, pro- we want to see the result, you know, instant gratification. That's the word I was looking for, you know, and just in general, you know, like in, in society, you know, we're, we're kind of traveling on this fast track, you know, with, with, uh, technology and, and just where we are in life, you know? So, and, and, and I say that especially for, for us women, you know, because we think that we need to be so much further than we are, you know, that's, that's anyway, that's been my sort of experience with, um, you know, my students and the people that I work with. It's always like this, there's not enough time or why am I not, you know, at this advanced level yet, or how come I don't understand these things yet? Or why am I still, uh, you know, not losing weight? You know, why am I still, you know, all of these things? And it's like, we want that sort of instant gratification. And we forget that there, it's a process, right? It's a, it's a long-term type of thing, you know, to be able to take the time and, and give ourselves the space to, to watch the slow progression to create sustainability as opposed to doing something quickly or not having enough time because it's like, there's just so many things to do. Um, I think that that kind of issue I, I tackle in my therapy office all the time. People will come in and they'll say, you know, okay, therapy's not working. I've been here for three weeks and you know, my 10 years (laughs) of depression isn't cured yet. And it's, you know, to tell them, well, okay, I, I know you can order something online in, the, in a split second and you get to do a lot of things in life these days. You know, you don't have to wait for commercials anymore. And, and we live in a sort of fast forward culture. But when it comes to your own life and making change within yourself, it's not going to happen that fast. I don't have any magic wands and there aren't any shortcuts that are healthy that are really going to get rid of certain bad habits or going to help you cultivate new ones or to improve your mental health overnight or anything like that. But I think that so many people just feel like, you know, they're sprinting through life so fast and then it just feels like, well, it's been three weeks. Why aren't I feeling any better? Because it feels like it's taking so long already. (laughs) Or have you ever worked with with uh, a patient that you had one session with them? They were like, "I'm fixed. Everything's great." <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Plenty of people that were like, "Oh, I just needed to talk about that." And I think sometimes that's it. Some people have carried around something and they just really wanted to get out their chest, and that's really all they needed. Or other people, though, they're like, "Oh, is that all I have to do in life? Is do all of these things? No problem." And you know, they walk out the door very confident that they're going to go out and change the world and um and maybe they do i hope that they do but (laughs) but i also get plenty of them that will call back and be like oh okay that didn't go quite as smoothly as i thought (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's part of what you talk about too is like not not expecting immediate results right right and to know that you know progress doesn't always come in a straight line that we hope that it would so often it's the two steps forward one step back and people will be like well 
you know, I, I messed up. I'm all the way back to where I was in the beginning. And it's really about coaching them to know that you can mess up and you can make mistakes, but it doesn't mean that you haven't made any progress at all. It's how you respond to those mistakes and how you recover when you, you know, whether you ate a cupcake when you were on a diet thinking you weren't going to eat sugar or, or whether, you know, you took some sort of a shortcut and then it didn't work out for you and you say, okay, well, how do I not make that mistake again and to really turn those things into a learning opportunity rather than thinking you're a failure. Right. Oh, I love that, Amy. That's awesome. That's so great. <laughs> That's so great. So what can we what can we expect from Amy in the next coming months? Good question. Um, I'm working on my next book right now, which is 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Oh. And that will come out in the fall of 2017, the biggest question I was getting from readers was, how do we help kids now? How do we mm. help kids become mentally strong so they don't grow up to be 40 years old and then try to try to learn this stuff? How do we right. teach it to them now? So uh, we thought one of the best ways was if we can teach parents how to teach kids, then that can be instrumental in, in getting this information out there. So, so there's that, and... Um, in the meantime, I just keep writing for Forbes and Inc. and Psychology Today and um, have an e-course on mental strength. I had a lot of people asking about how do I, what else can I do? Now that I read your book, I'm hungry for more. So we created an e-course to give people a more interactive experience with exercises and um, some more firsthand ideas of how do I apply these things to my life to become stronger. That's that's really great, and I'm definitely going to link that uh, with this podcast uh, when we publish it. It'll there there will be a link for that. So for people that want to um, uh, explore that, that's awesome that you're doing the e courses. It, it'll allow for more people to have access to it. So that's really cool. Um, so just a few questions in closing. Uh, number one, what are you grateful for? Oh. Boy, you know, I guess I'm grateful for all of the uh, lovely people that I have in my life, those I've met and those I haven't. Since writing this book, I get emails from strangers that tell me their story, and I think there's, I don't know, I can't even explain it other than to say I'm incredibly grateful for people that are willing to uh, come back and tell me, you know, thank you, but also people that are just willing to share their stories. That's why I love being a therapist as well, but just to know that there's so many people out there giving it their best makes you incredibly grateful. So great. And what, what inspires you? Hmm. I guess the lesson that I've learned is that life is short and you never know uh, when your number might be up. Mm. So I guess I'm inspired to make every day the very best that I can. Oh, that's really great. Another great, another great one, Amy. You're just giving, they're <laughs> just gems all the, all the whole time. And then so, <laughs> the last one is, what do you radically love? What do I radically love? Yes. I guess my, my faith, I don't talk about my faith very much. Mm -hmm. I try to make, make it clear to everybody that you can, um, you don't have to be strong on your own. You can definitely believe in a higher power and have a strong belief in God. And I, I radically love God. Oh, that's great. I love that. I love that. 
Amy, thank you so much for coming on to the show and for sharing all of your wisdom with us. And I say this on behalf of every single person who's read your story or seen your story or heard your story. Thank you. You're an inspiration to all of us. And I just hope that we can continue to spread these ideas and your story and your courage to everyone around the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Radically Loved Radio. For more information, you can go to radicallyloved.com. You can follow me on all the social media outlets, Instagram at Rosie Acosta, Twitter at Rosie Acosta, Love Radically on Facebook, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other things that I'm not mentioning, but I'm sure you will find them if you're looking for them. Thanks for listening.